This episode was made possible by ExpressVPN. Start browsing the web securely with three months free by going to expressvpn.com MMI. Welcome to Meet My Inspiration. On this episode, I speak with Rabbi Yonason Goldson. Yonason describes himself as a keynote speaker with 3,000 years experience and as an ethics warrior. He's also an educator, author, TEDx presenter, and once atheist turned rabbi. He's a very fun and insightful guy to talk with, and we cover a pretty wide range of topics here. You may not agree with everything he says, but I'm sure you'll find him to be an interesting and thoughtful man. And now, please welcome Rabbi Yonason Goldson. Okay. Hello, Yonason. Thank you very much for joining me on Meet My Inspiration. It is my pleasure, Chris. How do you tell people what you do? <laughs> well, <laughs> it varies from uh, day to day and uh, hour to hour. Um, I, um, well, I've taught high school for 23 years. And in the course of doing that, I developed a, an appreciation for how important it is to put the message in a language that the person listening is able to hear. We live in a society which has become one of preaching to the choir. Uh, we tune into the stations that tell us what we want to hear. We surround ourselves with people who confirm our beliefs. And uh, we, we don't typically go searching for points of view that challenge our preconceptions and our, and our core beliefs, even if we don't necessarily know how we came to our core beliefs. So what I try to do now as a, as a keynote speaker, uh, as a trainer, as a writer, um, is to put forth a message that gives people the opportunity to hear another side, to frame it in a way that it's not too threatening, uh, to try to stay away from the most contentious issues because those are the ones where we're most entrenched in our ideologies. And if we can talk about more peripheral issues, uh, skirt around the edges a little bit of the real hot button topics, develop a rapport with people who think a little differently from the way we do, we can start accustoming ourselves to appreciating that there's more than one way to look at any issue. So I suppose, uh, now, I don't know if I've ever said this before, but <laughs> you having presented me with that question, um, I, I suppose I'm someone who tries to facilitate thinking and communication. Well said. <clears throat> okay, let's go back in time a little bit. Um, could you please share with us um, who is Bob Gordon and how did he impact your life? Bob Gordon was a classmate of mine in high school. Um, I'm willing to guess that he doesn't remember me at all. We weren't particularly good friends. But one morning before school started, we were sitting in the senior lounge and we were having conversation. And for some reason, I felt compelled to tell him that I was an atheist. And he looked me in the eye and he said, that's stupid. I said, what do you mean that's stupid? And he said to me something that I have always remembered. He said, it makes no more sense not to believe in God 
than it makes to believe in God. You can't prove either one. Why do you want to believe in something you can't prove? And as a high school senior, uh, I was not particularly accustomed to admitting that I was wrong. And yet, uh, for whatever reason, at that moment, his words got, made their point. And I realized, yeah, that makes sense. I shouldn't believe in something that I can't prove. And so I changed my label. I stopped calling my, myself an atheist. I started calling myself an agnostic, even though that's technically not really what the term means. Uh, and that was, the, uh, that was the identity, the philosophical identity I, I then took upon myself and held for the next six years um, until uh, I had my next reason to reconsider my labels. But what he did for me was exactly what we were talking about a moment ago. Uh, and although I, I wouldn't necessarily endorse calling people stupid as, a, as an effective way of bringing them around to your cause, uh, sometimes you just hear the message, <laughs> regardless of the, of the tact or the nuance of the messenger. Uh, but what he got me to do was to think differently and to reconsider um, what I, something that I took for granted. And that primed me for the future. I was able to do it again at a time when it really made a much bigger difference in my life. Yes, and we will, we'll get to that in a few moments, I think. Well, after, after high school, you attended the University of California as an English major. Um, what did you do after graduation from college? Well, um, as, as we know from the crisis that uh, many college graduates face, if they come out of college with a degree that might have been interesting, but is not necessarily marketable, and especially if they have a lot of college debt, which fortunately I did not have, what are you going to do? The point of college is twofold. It's to broaden us, it's to help us mature intellectually, but it's also to prepare us to earn a livelihood and to support ourselves after we get done with our schooling. And I didn't really have a plan. And so the only thing that really seemed like a good idea at the time was to put in a backpack and go hitchhiking across the United States. And that's what I did, uh, something else I would not particularly recommend, and I'm very pleased that my children didn't, uh, didn't follow my example. Uh, it was a little bit safer then, but it was, it was still the early 80s and past the time that that was common. But I had always wanted to write. I took English because I loved words, I loved stories, I loved ideas, but I realized I didn't have any stories of my own. I didn't have any great ideas that I wanted to share with the world. And I thought if I, if I put myself in a situation where I was gonna be challenged from day to day, that perhaps I would learn something about the world, learn something about myself, and, uh, and come away with some stories that I would be able to tell. And uh, that's really what drove me to embark on this choice that may seem lacking in wisdom. Well, um, I think in hindsight, you, you now realize that you did learn quite a lot from that experience. Um, what do you think you learned um, most from your, your time as a hitchhiker? Well, one of the lessons that uh, has stayed with me, and, and I talk about it in my TED Talk, is the power of listening. Because when you're a hitchhiker and you climb into the front seat of a car, you're very grateful. All those other cars that pass you by, 
without picking you up. And this person is giving you a ride, is trusting you, is uh, putting themselves in some um, potential discomfort or awkwardness. And how do you pay that back? You pay it back by giving the driver what the driver wants. In many cases, what drivers want is someone to listen. There's this uh, stranger on a train phenomenon that uh, two people are in a situation where they know they're never going to see each other again. Uh, they'll, tell the, they'll tell the deepest, darkest secrets. And, and that's really what happened. I, I heard all kinds of stories. And in some cases, drivers actually told me that what they were telling me they had never shared with their wives or their, or their children or their parents or their best friends. And it was safe because they knew I'd be getting out of the car and we'd be going our different ways. And, and I realized that it wasn't my place to respond. I was paying for my ride by listening. And very often when we talk to each other, we're not really talking to each other. <laughs> my my uh, college psychology professor he used to call this dialogues of the deaf. And two people talk at each other, but they're really just trading monologues and neither one's listening to the other. When you actually stop and listen, you learn so much about people. And the more you learn about other people, the more you learn about yourself. Because we live in a world with other people. And hearing how people frame their ideas and their experiences and, and why they think the way they do, and actually absorbing those points of views, those personalities, those reference points, those experiences, uh, it broadens us, which really was my point uh, in, in going on this trip in the first place. I didn't really realize it was going to play out the way it did. Well, that's a, that's a valuable lesson to learn. It worked out well for you. Um, eventually, you stopped hitchhiking, um, and you finally found your way to Israel. Um, what initially drew you there? I had been to Israel on a, on a student trip for four days um, in college. And I was astonished when I got there. I grew up with, with the knowledge that I was Jewish, but with no Jewish training whatsoever, no practice. We were entirely secular. And I was astonished when I got to Israel, the emotional magnetism of the place. Uh, I really felt like I had come home. And it was something I couldn't explain. Hmm. There was really nothing in my background or my world philosophy or view that, that should have, it, that should have allowed it to have such a power over me. And so I knew I wanted to go back. And so after hitchhiking cross country, I, I went to Europe, I backpacked across Europe. And I uh, ended up in Israel my plan was to volunteer on a kibbutz, a collective farm, picking oranges or grapefruits, and then continue on my trip heading off to Kenya and Botswana. But what happened was astonishing. It was, it was um, 1983, I believe, and, or 1984. And I, uh, I got there at, in the fall, and that summer, the, the American dollar was at an all-time high. There were eight or nine million Americans in Europe. And when it got cold in Europe, a lot of them headed south and ended up in Israel. And so when I found my way to the kibbutz placement office, which is where volunteers would go, there, there were signs up saying, no space is available. Come back next year. There were people in sleeping bags camping out like they wanted to buy 
tickets for a Rolling Stones concert, and I know I'm dating myself. Um, what was I going to do? I was, I was, I'd been done traveling for almost half a year. I was exhausted. I didn't have money to just hang out. I was counting on this sort of routine and, and having a place where I could stay. Uh, and I really didn't know what to do. And through an unlikely series of events, I found my way into a, uh, a rabbinic college, a religious seminary. And that seemed like reasonable way to spend a couple of months. It would be engaging intellectually. They gave me a bed and three meals a day. Uh, I was completely unprepared for what I was going to find there. Okay. Um, well, let, let's talk about uh, your time at the, the seminary. Um, early on, you attended your first philosophy class at the seminary. Um, this class turned out to be rather eye-opening for you. Um, could you share that story with us? Sure. It's a story I've told many times. I tell it in my TED talk. I was led into a classroom, and I was told that there would be a class on Jewish philosophy. And it was very cold. It was November or December, and I wasn't really adequately dressed, and I got caught in some rain on the way in, shivering. The room was not adequately heated. And in the far back corner, there's a window, and there's a, a, a ray of sunlight coming in through the window. And I took that seat in literally the far back corner, thinking I'd get just a little bit of warmth. Well, in the next few minutes, the whole room filled up around me, absolutely packed capacity. The rabbi walked in, everybody stood up, and I looked for a way out. Because this wasn't just a rabbi, this was a chassid. This was a chassid. And if you don't know what that means, try to picture the big black hat and the, the scraggly beard, the long black coat, and the side locks, and the glasses with Coke bottle lenses. And I knew, I knew he was going to have a thick accent, German or Yiddish, and he was going to tell us we're all going to burn in hell if we don't listen to what he says. I've got to get out of here. I can't listen to a person like this. But because I was in the far back corner of this crowded room, I would have had to literally climb over a dozen people to get out and make a spectacle of myself. It wasn't going to happen. So I sank back in my seat, and I thought I can survive anything for an hour. When he started to talk, he had a New England accent. He sounded like a professor of philosophy, which I found out later he was. And he was so articulate and so knowledgeable and so rational, he just destroyed all of my stereotypes. And that itself was enormously powerful. And again, it goes back to this idea of, of listening and communicating. When we expect someone to have a certain message, we automatically tune out. I already know what you're going to say. Why should I bother listening? If we leave ourselves open to actually wait and hear the message and try to understand what it is, we can discover all kinds of things about other people and about ourselves. And, and the, the delightful part of the story is that I told it in the TED talk, and when I finished my talk and I went out the back and was circling back to the auditorium, a woman intercepted me as I was about to go in and she said, when you got up on that stage, I knew exactly what kind of person you were and exactly what kind of talk you were gonna give and you blew away all my expectations. And thank you. And it was, it was this feeling of coming full circle. Absolutely, yes.
Okay, well, you went from an atheist in your younger years to a rabbi. What is it that made you decide to become a rabbi rather than just someone that faithfully practices Judaism? Well, much to, much to my parents' lament, uh, I was always very idealistic. My father had a very successful construction company I could have gone into. My grandfather had a law firm that he'd founded that I could have gone into. And for, I just never, I never felt that a career or a vocation was just about making money or just about making a living. I was always pursuing deeper ideas, deeper thoughts, meaning, purpose. It's one of the reasons I studied literature. I loved the ideas. I loved the stories. I loved the, the depth of thought. And so when I discovered, and, and I mean, it was traumatic for me to slowly come to the awareness that I was going to be living my life in a completely different way than I'd ever imagined. I mean, I wasn't attracted to the beauty and the tradition of Judaism. I was convinced by the intellectual integrity and the, and the, the truthfulness of what I was being taught. And, and it was so compelling and it was so inspiring that I wanted to invest my life in this. And so I stayed in Israel for, for almost nine years studying. And I still remember at one point, uh, I was married. I met my wife there. We had our first two children there. And I was talking to my rabbi, and he said to me, I can't even remember what the context was, it was seemingly out of the blue. He says, there's going to come a point when you're not going to be satisfied to sit and study any longer. You're going to want to do something with it. And it's, it's, it's still, it's, it's remarkable to me because it's one of the reasons why we need mentors. We need people who know us because often they see us with a clarity that we can't see in ourselves. I thought he was absolutely crazy. I didn't know what he was talking about. Where did he get this idea? But it was only a year or two later that I started feeling itchy. So I've got, I've got to get out and do something with all of this wisdom that I've acquired. And um, I, I investigated a few different options. But often the path appears beneath our feet. And, uh, and I found myself offered a, a job teaching uh, school children in Budapest, Hungary. And my wife and I and our two children uh, went off to Budapest to teach for a year. And then um, went to Atlanta, Georgia to teach for two years. And then uh, came to St. Louis where I taught for 20 years. So let's move on. Um, what does open-mindedness mean to you? Well, there's an expression or a saying, I don't know where it comes from, but I think it's something that's worth repeating, that if we're too open-minded, our brains will fall out. It's one of my pet peeves, this, this phrase that is everywhere these days, non-judgmentalism. I know what people mean. And I agree with what they think they mean, which is 
Don't rush to judgment. Don't make assumptions about people before you know who they are. Don't make, don't assume or, or, or don't invest in your stereotypes. Don't make judgments without adequate uh, information. The problem, the reason I have a problem with the term non-judgmentalism is because we have to judge. We make judgments all the time and we should because we should have core values. We should have things we believe in. And we need to make judgments because that's how we make decisions. That's how we form associations. That's how we trust some people more than we trust others. And the classic um, philosophical work in Judaism is called Ethics of Fathers. And the very first teaching of the book is to be deliberate in judgment. Don't rush to judgment. Don't jump to conclusions. But it doesn't say don't judge. It says, judge carefully, judge thoughtfully. Make sure you have enough information to judge, but we still need to make those judgments. So open-mindedness is the willingness to listen, to learn, to reevaluate, to consider other points of view, to re-examine my own views and my own beliefs and to allow myself to be challenged and to engage in, uh, in, in debate and discussion with people who come from other points of view. Uh, I had a college professor, he used to say, he didn't understand why people complained about being disillusioned. He said, I would like to be relieved of my illusions. Well, the truth is that the more time we spend and invest in believing in something, the more difficult it is for us to give up those beliefs. But wouldn't we rather discover that we've been wrong than continue to be wrong? Open-mindedness is simply allowing ourselves to consider possibilities that are different from what we already believe. Yes, indeed. How do you define ethical communication? I know this is important to you. And what is its importance? Ethical communication is really, the truth is, any time that you put a, an adjective in front of the word communication, uh, it's almost redundant. Clear communication. Well, if it's not clear, it's not communication. I can, be, I can be saying the most articulate, brilliant, profound ideas in the world, and if you don't understand what I'm saying, or even worse, if you think you understand, but you're actually hearing something else, I have not communicated. And so when I use the term ethical communication, what I'm saying is the need to communicate in a way where we take responsibility for hearing and being heard. And I break it down into, into a series of steps. So the first thing is I have to be articulate. I have to be able to explain my point of view to someone who doesn't already necessarily believe in what I'm saying. And that's how I establish credibility. So credibility is the first step. 
then I have to listen and re and respond. I have to show you that I've heard you and that I understand where you're coming from and that's how I establish trust. Then I have to acknowledge truth, which is showing integrity. I have to admit when you're right, like I did with Bob Gordon, right? Because sometimes the truth isn't what we want it to be. Sometimes the truth isn't what we would like it to be. But the truth is the truth. And the willingness to accept that is the sign of integrity. Then is consistency. We have to avoid double standards. We have to reject double standards. I can't. I mean, you see it so much in politics that this outrage when someone in the other party does something, and then when someone in my party does it, oh, that's a it's 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 intellectual hypocrisy. And so that consistent application of logic, of thought, of reason, and rejecting those those double standards. And finally is humility, which is really what we were just talking about, the willingness to con continuously re-examine my beliefs and always be always be willing to consider the possibility that maybe I'm not seeing the whole picture, maybe I'm not seeing as clearly as I ought to be. We put all that together, then we're communicating in a way where we can start to really learn to respect each other, where we can find common ground, and we can work together to start to solve our, our many, many problems. Wonderful. Um, Jonathan, what do you think about the current chaos in the US related to the death of George Floyd what are your thoughts on the causes and possible solutions? Well, this, uh, as you know, is a, is a very touchy subject. Um, but I think that it's an important discussion to have because I think it pertains very closely to what we've just been talking about. The, the nuances of truth, the it's so easy to stake out a position on one extreme or the other. And usually the truth is somewhere in the middle. And so being able to differentiate between what was done to George Floyd and who George Floyd was, he, he did not deserve to have happened to him what happened to him. There is no excuse, no justification for what that policeman did to him. And, and it is reprehensible. And the full weight of the law should have come down and should come down on that policeman. At the same time, George Floyd was not an upstanding citizen. He had multiple criminal records. He had apparently at one point pointed a gun at a pregnant woman's belly while robbing her house. This is not someone to turn into a hero. And because he was killed in a reprehensible way, doesn't change the life that he lived. And the unwillingness to deal with that uncomfortable tension is, is contributing, I think, to the current um, narrative 
of, of systemic racism. That word systemic, it, it just, it, it really bugs me. If we lived in a systemically racist society, we would not have had a two-term black president. We would not have black Supreme Court justices. We would not have black congressmen and senators. We would not have black college presidents. We would not have black sports heroes. There is racism. People are racist. And the truth is that most of us have some degree of prejudice or bias from our upbringing, from our culture, from our personal makeup. Um, it's, just, it's just part of human nature. The whole idea of stereotyping is that we want to make it easier for ourselves to make judgments about people when we meet them. And so based on dress, based on age, based on weight, based on height, based on eye color, I mean, people, people will find any reason, subconsciously or consciously, to make judgments about other people. And this is what we talked about before. Be deliberate in judgment. Be careful before you start judging. To be aware that we have biases. But, you know, if I'm walking down the street and a person comes towards me wearing a suit and tie, I don't care whether he's white or black, I'm probably going to feel very comfortable having him pass me on the road. If someone comes walking towards me, wearing leather, maybe with tattoos, maybe with piercings, um, I'm maybe in a group. It doesn't matter whether they're black and white, black or white. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably feel a little bit uneasy. This is just the way we are, but it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with race. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with skin color. But for some people, it does. And there are racists. And there is racism. And there will always be prejudice and racial, racial prejudice. But to be able to differentiate between the shortcomings of human nature and problems that have historical origins and have cultural origins, to be able to differentiate between those and the system itself, um, I just heard a, an interview with um, a woman, her name is Ayan Hirsu, Hirsu Ali, I believe. She's a, she's a Somali immigrant. She escaped when she was a girl to the Netherlands. She came to the United States. She had an op-ed recently in the Wall Street Journal. That's what she's accomplished uh, in her life. And, and to, you know, very dark-skinned uh, woman. And to hear her saying from her experience that there is no place better for anyone in the world than the United States. Um, it's, it's so easy to latch on to a narrative to address a problem because we don't want to do the hard work of actually figuring out how we're going to try to address this. Well, what do you think? How, how, how do we move forward? I mean, it's a, it's an enormous problem. Um, it's, there's no easy solution for sure. What, what, what do you think? What, what are your thoughts on how to move forward and improve 
American society overall and try to move away from these issues if possible? It's, you know, not something we're going to solve in a, in a, in a podcast. Um, you know, the solution is not pulling down statues of every historical figure. Um, the solution is not um, disbanding the police force. Uh, it, it starts, some of what's going on is very good. These conversations that are going on are an important first step. Uh, you know, it, it is it is absolutely unacceptable that black people should worry about getting pulled over by the police. And it seems like you can hardly find a black person in America that does, does not have stories like this. That they're driving through a, a, an upper class white neighborhood doing absolutely nothing wrong and they're pulled over. And sometimes interrogated and frisked and kept there for, for long periods of time and humiliated by in that way. It's, it's absolutely unacceptable. So clearly there is a problem with police training. Um, it's, it's hard for me to understand. I grew up in Southern California um, where, you know, I, I didn't even realize my best friend in first grade was black because it was just, so irrelevant, you know, these biases are learned from our surroundings. We don't, we're not born to be racist. So uh, we need to take a hard look at why this continues to be a problem in, in police departments. And that's something that should be addressed and needs to be addressed. Um, a lot of the problems are, I think, are more cultural than racial. Uh, children who grow up in single parent homes have a tougher time in every way. Children who grow up in single ho parent homes in poverty, boys who grow up without a father figure. I mean, there are, there are reasons why the cycle is perpetuated. And looking honestly at how we got to this point and how we can try to, to turn things back, uh, rebuild the family, um, that's going to take, uh, take some doing. And there's not going to be an easy fix for that. But it needs to be given some serious thought because simple solutions do not solve complex problems. And it's yes, a problem for all of us because we're all sharing this country and we're all sharing this world and we have to live together one way or another. Okay, thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. Um, let's move on to something a little bit lighter, I think. Um, is there a particular quote or piece of advice from someone that you find yourself often sharing with others? Yeah, I, uh, I'm particularly fond of uh, the quote by the, the late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Uh, he just summed this idea up so beautifully. He said, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. <laughs> I like that. And, and you can't have an opinion without facts. I mean, think about what's going on right now with 
this, this national debate about wearing masks. I mean, it is baffling to me. And you know, say, I have the right not to wear a mask. Well, maybe you do. But why would you want to exercise that right? We, we, share the, we share a society. You're exercising your right and you're putting other people at risk? Why? Some abstract concept of a right not to be told what to do? That's not the way a civil society functions. And, and, and it, it really comes down to this, this obsession we have with our rights. Far more important to focus on our responsibilities. If I'm taking responsibility for your rights and you're taking responsibility for my rights, we're going to do pretty well. But if I'm looking out for me and you're looking out for you, we're going to be banging heads again and again and again. Well, you, you've broached the topic of the, the COVID-19 pandemic. So I'd like to ask you, what advice would you offer to someone who is struggling with their faith or religion? in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic and the related financial devastation and psychological struggles that many people are currently enduring? Listen, the, the first thing is not to minimize anyone's struggles or suffering. Uh, this is a, a very difficult situation, especially for some people. Um, my mother, who's 90, almost 92 years old, uh, is living in an assistant living um, place and one of her neighbors jumped off his balcony. He was all alone. He was isolated and he was depressed. And so you know, all of the measures that we take to protect our physical health, um, we've been a little less conscious of the, of the mental health issues. I mean, there are stories of doctors and nurses who committed suicide or dealt with depression because they just saw so much suffering. You can never minimize suffering. On the other hand, it's always important to keep perspective. I mean, imagine if this would be 20 years ago and we didn't have Zoom. How cut off would be, but we didn't have Netflix. Um, you know, the internet has made it possible for us to preserve connections in ways that very recently would not have been an option. Um, from a theological point of view, suffering is an opportunity for us to become stronger. I always use the example of Navy SEALs. Uh, running ops, an obstacle course. Well, if they would remove the obstacle course, if they would remove the obstacles on the obstacle course, they could run the course much faster, right? But the point is not to run the course fast. The point is to get, to learn to get around obstacles, to deal with obstacles. And that's really what life is. Life is a, is a race. It's a marathon, but it has obstacles. And we have to deal with them. And we don't know when they're going to come. And we don't know what they're going to be. And sometimes we have to go through them alone. And sometimes we have to go through them with other people. But it really comes down to a mindset. Um, there's a famous story about a rabbi who, who had terrible um, suffering. He was, he was 
poor, uh, he, he, had, he had illness, uh, just all kinds of, of terrible suffering in his life. And, um, and some students came to him and said, Rebbe, how, how do you do it? How do you, how do you keep a positive attitude with so much suffering? He says, what suffering? Nothing bad ever happened to me. Now, that may be a little bit lofty for most of us, but we can deal with pain. We can all, we've all dealt with pain. Any woman who's given birth has dealt with pain. <laughs> Any person who goes to the gym and has had, a, has had a workout, especially with a trainer, has dealt with pain. Anybody who's ever learned to you know, practice a sport or learned a musical instrument, and most of us have had some kind of physical pain in our lives. We can deal with pain. What we can't deal with is pointless pain. What makes pain bearable is when we believe that there's a reason for it. What makes it unbearable is when we believe that there's no reason for it. And so what, what coming from a theological point of view informs us that there's a reason for everything that happens. And we may not understand it. We may not like it, but we are faithful to the idea that everything has a reason. And that if we look for a reason, not necessarily we're going to find one, but if we look for a reason with the belief that there is something positive that I can take out of this experience. Um, I was just writing this this week that, um, go back to the Navy SEALs for a moment. Simon Sinek talks about the, this Navy SEAL who was asked, what kind of people make it through training? And he said, the ones who, when they're tired and broken and in pain and cold and shivering and miserable, they look for how they can help someone else. And I immediately thought about Elie Wiesel, the famous Holocaust survivor, who said, how did people survive Auschwitz? Which people survived Auschwitz? The people who found other people to help. When you're in pain, look for a way to help somebody else in pain. And that sense of connection and that sense of giving will empower you and will give you the strength to deal with your own pain. Wonderful. Uh, Jonasen, this has been uh, an interesting and also inspiring talk. Uh, I really want to thank you for taking the time to join me uh, for Meet My Inspiration. It's been a pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me here. My thanks to Rabbi Goldson for his time and many insights. He's such a witty, entertaining, and thought-provoking guy who can make you smile even when discussing some of the deeper, weightier issues. If you want to find out more about Jonasen, you can visit jonasengoldson.com or find him on LinkedIn, where he is quite active. Also at his website, you can find information on the books he has authored, including his latest, Fix Your Broken Windows, a 12-step system for promoting ethical affluence. Again, available at jonasengoldson.com. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Meet My Inspiration, and I hope we've been able to inspire you too even if just a little. Sometimes that's all it takes to make great things happen.
Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like broadcasting to the world everything you do online. Here's how to protect yourself and get three months for free. Did you know that your internet service provider knows every single website you visit? And what's worse is they can sell this information to ad companies and tech giants who will use your data to target you. ExpressVPN creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so that your online activity can't be seen by anyone. ExpressVPN works on all devices, phones, laptops, even routers, so that everyone who shares your Wi-Fi is protected too. And the best part is using ExpressVPN is super easy. Just fire up the app, click one button, and you're protected. ExpressVPN is the world's number one rated VPN by TechRadar, Wired, The Verge, and countless others. So if you believe your online activity is your business, secure yourself by visiting expressvpn.com MMI, and you can get an extra three months for free. That's expressvpn.com MMI.